Hello, friends, family, enemies, and strangers of all kinds. Welcome back to Extra Milestone, the film anniversary podcast where we take a trip to the past to discover the classic films that have made the cinematic landscape what it is today. I am your host, as always, Sam Noland, and with me I have two returning guests to the show that I'm very excited to talk with. First off, we have the co-host of Cinemaholics, an all-around uh, uh, very, very, very fine man, if I do say so myself. Will Ashton. Will, how are you? Oh, thank you. Uh, it's a very uh, <laughs> sweet way to introduce me, so uh, I'm doing well. I, I always delight whenever I get to podcast with you, Will, so I am excited oh, likewise. to be doing it today. Yeah, yeah and, and I like that you use well. the word trip. Oh, yeah. sorry. Because <laughs> uh, I was going to say... Yeah. Uh, I feel like after these movies we were about to discuss, I feel like I've been across the country and back pretty much. I mean, obviously <laughs> one is not in the U.S., but you know what I mean. Yeah, we're, it's, I'm, I'm so excited to talk about these three movies specifically, uh, and that is a conversation I'm excited to get into. With us as well, we have returning for the second time on Extra Milestone, and for what I'm sure will surely not be the last, it is Andrew McMahon. Welcome back, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam. I feel like I'm being called up to the big leagues now or something, <laughs> now that I'm here with a regular contributor and we're doing three mm-hmm. films this time. Yeah, this don't take this lightly, McMahon. This is this is a very <laughs> this is a rite of passage, but I think it's gonna be a, a really exciting one. We have to discuss today, we have a very unique triple feature. And the credit goes in large part to Will Ashton for initially planting the idea in my mind to sort of get weird with it and combine a couple of movies that you would never expect to be combined. Will, what do you have to say for yourself? Um, Well, I wish I could say this was like some ingenious plan, but really what it was was (laughs) you gave me the list of films and I was like, oh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Should I say Uh what these are or... What was that? Yeah, it's all good. They know they know the, okay. sh- the title of the show. Okay, just making sure. Yeah, I was like, I saw Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I was like, I haven't seen that in a long time. I really need to rewatch that. Uh, I've been meaning that I've been meaning to do a rewatch of that. And I was like, okay, that's a given. And then like Wanda, I know how much you love that movie. I'm like, I gotta check this one at some point. This seems like the perfect opportunity to do so. Let's check these out. And then you were like, <laughs> Will. You madman, that might work. And then I was like, you know, it's funny. I didn't think about it, but these are both road trip movies. It, it is kind of fitting. And then you were like, Will, how could you come up with such an idea? This is great. And then you mentioned Vegabound. And it's just, uh, it flourished, I guess, from there, which I think is quite amusing. I, I, you're, I love how your voice changes slightly when you're like quoting me. <laughs> I think it's, it's very nice. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I decided let's throw in let's throw in Agnes Varda. That'll be fun. And so for I'm gonna I'm gonna say it for the first time in podcast history, the movie Wanda and Pee-Wee's Big Adventure and Vagabond are all being discussed in the same episode. And I think we're making we're making history today, and I'm excited to do so. So let's get into our first feature, which is Barbara Loden's Wanda. Come home from work, she's lying around on the couch, kids are dirty, there's diapers on the floor. Sometimes the kids is outside, running around, nobody watching them. Wanda Goronsky. Listen, Judge, if he wants a divorce, just give it to him. You know what happened to me? Somebody stole all my money. 
And I'm just no good. <laughs> just no good. Now, this is a movie that was released in 1970, in August 1970, at the Venice Film Festival. That's where it premiered. And it is notable for a couple of reasons. Most uh, importantly, perhaps, is that it is the first movie to be both written and directed and incidentally starring a woman. Barbara Loden was credited as the sole writer of this, although some reports claim that her husband, Elia Kazan of On the Waterfront fame, initially wrote it, but everyone has has said that whether or not that's true, Barbara Loden pretty much made it her own, and you can really tell that this is coming from a very personal place. I did not hear about this movie until last year when the Criterion channel was it was sort of leading up to its release and every week they would allow subscribers access to one movie per week to watch and say, here's a little bit of what you have in store. And I was actually writing articles. I was reviewing all those movies in the spring of last year. And this was one of them. And I saw it and kind of fell in love instantly. Um, I'm curious because I think I know the answer, but I just want to make sure Andrew, what did, was, was it, was that how you also first learned of Wanda? Yeah, actually the exact same circumstances as you. And actually I read your article um, reviewing it, which is what got me to watch it. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, I'm very flattered. Yes, I, I don't, I'm not nearly as active as a writer, but that if you ask me what's my favorite article that, that I've written, it would probably be that one. So I'm very proud of that. Uh, and Will, the the same question goes to you. I know that you were aware of the movie uh, at least before this podcast, but did you know about it before uh, the spring of last year, or was that your first uh, awareness of it? Um, I was a little familiar with it just slightly before you two, I believe. I mean, I know um, before it was in the Criterion, uh, they were doing retro screenings, or they were doing like a revival where they were showing it in some theaters across the country and my theater mm -hmm. was playing it. And so I was working the the day they were showing it and I wanted to check it out, but it was uh, like a part of a Sunday series where they show older movies and the time they're showing it was the only time it was playing at the theater. And um, I was obviously working, so I couldn't you know go into the movie and watch it, but I was very intrigued because that was the first time I'd heard about it. I didn't know anything about it. And I read all the things you just mentioned and I was like, Oh wow. Like, you know, I was shocked kind of that it wasn't mentioned more that I hadn't heard at least a little bit about it beforehand, but right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's pretty much the unfortunate reality of uh, women filmmakers is that they've been ignored, not entirely, but largely either ignored or like downplayed throughout film history. And I think we're at a point now where we're, we're um, what's the word, like kind of revising that or like we're, we're putting, more women to spotlight, thankfully, as filmmakers and allowing them to express themselves creatively. And that's a very good thing, obviously. And I'm glad that through that extension, we're finally getting a chance to talk about Wanda, which I believe was a film that has been talked about more, but it has only really been like kind of an underground film, I feel like, for the past, I guess, now 40 years. Yeah, it's well, 50 years because it was released in 1970. And it's interesting because I was reading a little bit about the initial release of the movie and it was not it was not universally loved it actually received a lot of criticism upon first release and well i think we'll get into the reasons why when we uh, start to talk about the actual movie itself but 
the thing is that the the interesting thing is that it wasn't until very recently as in like the last five years that this movie really started getting noticed and started uh getting re-examined and stuff i want to say it was 2017 i might be wrong on that was when the movie was inducted into the library of congress for being uh culturally significant which it is and then a year later is when those revival screenings were taking place and then of course early last year criterion really gave it that big push and it's become a bit of a it's become a bit of a favorite i know a lot of people who have watched it in the past year and really loved it i think as you can probably tell from what we've said uh andrew and i are are big fans of wanda wouldn't you say andrew yeah for sure it was one of the best uh new to me discoveries i had um in 2019 for sure yeah i think that was probably the second I made a list. I can't remember exactly where it was, but I think it was the second best movie of that year that I saw for the first time that like wasn't a new release. So very, very high on the list. But Will Ashton, I'm very curious. You saw Wanda via the Criterion channel. What was your reaction to it? Give us sort of your a general overview of your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I went in, you know, some high expectations given what you've said and many other people had said. So a part of me kind of wishes I was able to go into this fully, like, like having no idea of what it was and like only having a marginal idea of like its history. But nevertheless, I mean, I I do think the, the power of the film speaks for itself. I, I mean, I think it is uh, basically about as good as you two have mentioned or are going to say. Um, and I, I don't know. I always have a soft spot for films that are, um, starring their directors or vice versa directed by their stars or however you want to phrase mm-hmm. it i don't know I, I i tend to feel like people kind of dismiss films like this where like they they have like a uh, multi-hyphenate involved because they seem to think it's either like indulgent or uh like some sort of vanity thing but i never got the sense with this film i mean i don't know i just like i said i have a soft spot for films like this where they do tend to have uh the person charged doing wearing multiple hats at once. But I do yeah. think like you were saying, like it's something about this makes it feel more personal. I feel by result of it obviously being more personal because someone like it's one person doing like the, the magic show uh, doing like pulling the strings and being in front of the stage at once. And um, mm-hmm. as far as the movie itself, I mean, it is, uh, I, I would say very much warranted of all the praise and uh, recognition as is received of late. And I'm very curious to hear what the criticisms are because I, I don't quite know if I uh, would agree with them. But I mean, I, I was really taken by the film upon this first watch. I'm so glad to hear that. For a second, when you, when I when you said that you had a soft spot, I thought you were going to say that you had a soft spot for movies set in Pennsylvania because that's well, uh, incidentally where this yeah. movie is set. Although it is Eastern Pennsylvania, and I know that you're in more of the Western yeah uh, region. So I'm curious to hear if if sort of the aesthetic of this movie rang true in any way on that level. Although granted, it is 50 years later. Was that did you did you find yourself sort of connecting to it in that way? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I I do also have a soft spot for films that are in PA uh, to an extent. I still need to watch um, uh, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, which I know is a big PA film that was that came out this year and is supposed to be one of the best. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, this movie, I I knew like it, it, when I see a movie, it's in PA. It's like one of those things where it's like kind of the inverse of like when I see a movie from Canada, where like <laughs> whenever I see a movie from Canada, I'm like, this seems like some place i know but it doesn't like something seems <laughs> off whereas with pa movies 
like even if I don't know they're from PA, like something about them just feels instantly warm and gratifying. And it's just like, ah, this is home. Like I, I don't know why, but this feels like home. And so when you say it's PA, that, that makes a lot of sense. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to give a little bit of just sort of an overview of what this movie is uh, in case uh, listeners don't know. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to try and we're going to not really talk about the ending, I think. But if something comes up organically in conversation and we feel like we need to bring it up, then we can sort of designate a little bit of time to at, at the very end of the conversation to do that. I'll make a note of that in the show notes. And that goes for all three of these movies. But the basic premise of Wanda is that it follows uh, a woman, a wife, a mother, Wanda, played by director Barbara Loden, who is feeling some sort of despair. You get the sense right off the bat that she has become completely just disenfranchised by life and has realized that there's really, there's kind of no real point to it all. You get the sense that she's maybe experiencing some sort of depression or existential reflection. She divorces her husband and leaves her children in the first couple of scenes in the movie and just goes out into the landscape and just kind of tries to find meaning. Like that's the basic sense I get. And along the way, she encounters a petty criminal who's in the process of holding up a bar late at night. And it's actually kind of a funny reveal because at first you think he's the bartender and uh, Wanda goes into the bathroom and then comes back out and says, there are no hand towels in the restroom. Do you have any? And he looks down and there's the actual bartender with like a hand towel, like gagging his mouth and everything. So it's a, so it's a funny reveal. And the two of them decide, okay, let's just sort of Bonnie and Clyde this. Let's go around and start committing little petty crimes all across Pennsylvania and a little bit of Connecticut as well, I believe. And a lot of it is just the conversations between the two of them. And it's really all about the inner turmoil of this character, Wanda. Um, I want to ask Andrew... I want to ask you first, what is something either with the first viewing last year or with this rewatch for this podcast, what's something that really sticks out to you about this movie, whether it's the acting or the photography or the dialogue? What is what is kind of the first thing that you think about when you think about Wanda? Uh, the first thing I that caught my attention not right off the bat is the 16 millimeter photography. Um, which just really gives it that like textured grit and authenticity that I think this story kind of demands in the way that Barbara Loden's telling it. Um, and also, of course, just her performance, which I hesitate to even use the word performance because mm -hmm. there's not many movies like this where you see an actor and whatever character they're playing just kind of like intermingle and meld with one another so naturally and beautifully i think yeah. um so those are definitely probably the two biggest things that stand out to me um still even on a second viewing mm -hmm. i like i like that you mentioned um how it's almost not even a performance it feels so natural the way that barbara Loden is able to play this character and one thing i forgot to mention earlier is kind of who Barbara Loden is herself. Um, she was initially 
just uh, just an actor for film. She appeared in a handful of movies directed by Elia Kazan, who would eventually become her husband. And I was not, I haven't seen them all, but I did get to watch Splendor in the Grass last night, Elia Kazan's movie. And that stars Warren Beatty and uh, Natalie Wood as sort of two lovers who, you know, get torn apart by the circumstances around them. It's it's almost like the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, if you've heard of that, right down to the ending. But Barbara Loden shows up as Warren Beatty's sister, and the second she appears on screen, I was like immediately taken with her. I kind of wanted, I was kind of frustrated that it kept cutting away from her and that she's not in the movie very much. So it's, she's a very striking screen presence. And then throughout kind of the 60s, she worked a lot in theaters, or, or in theater, I should say, for the stage. And eventually by the late 60s was able to finance her own story uh, to finance her own movie and it's uh it's fascinating the way that this movie just sort of shows and doesn't tell you know what i'm saying you you get so much out of this character just from kind of the way she reacts to things whether it's just you know, visual or whether it's verbal or anything. A lot of the dialogue is improvised and it comes off as really natural. Will, I'm curious, what, if anything, was something that you found to be really intriguing about the lead character in this movie? What is, what's, what's something that you would say is really makes her distinct? I mean, I think you two really hit the nail on the head already as far as like, I, I think she puts enough trust in herself as a filmmaker to, let the character kind of just explain herself like there's like no like with the exception of the courtroom scene i guess there's like not a lot of like explaining the character like characters like in a kitchen or something just being like oh have you heard what she did so it's just like her actions her reactions and i thought to say like she's like a very like uh overly expressive person like it's like a lot of intuitive acting as well so i think it's really credit to her um, as a filmmaker and as an actress to uh rein it in while still conveying everything that needs to be said and express uh, as a performer and filmmaker, but um, yeah, I mean, I think you two really, I mean, I, I would just be echoing what you said as far as like the character self. I think it's a very natural performance. It's one that expresses itself through action and through like just very kind of subtle, gentle movement. And then as like the plot progresses, we get to know obviously more about her as a person and whatnot. So um, I, I think, yeah, it, it's an early confidence in herself as a filmmaker that uh, is always just really refreshing to see. It has a very, um, Cassavetti's kind of feel to it. I think that's mm. intentional. I'm trying to think. This yeah. is, I guess, I'm trying to think. So, Cassavetti's was, was he making films in the 60s by this point? I know it was primarily in the 70s, but. He was primarily in the 70s. I, he he started working in the 50s, so he was well yeah. into his career at this point. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think it's, it feels pretty intentional, but the same kind of indie feel where it's like very performance driven and then like obviously like very low budget. And then, like you said, 60 millimeter and then just kind of like on the fly feel that like could have been just like interruptive and under like a less assured filmmaker, but the fact that it, she used it to her advantage, like kind of make it feel like you said, more natural, more intuitive mm-hmm. to the scene. I think that's, you know, really a testament to her as a filmmaker and an actress. Yeah. One thing I really love about this movie is the, is the way that it harnesses its low budget and kind of, re- kind of defiantly refuses to be constrained by it. You get this sense that, there's sort of this, or I get the sense at least, and I I couldn't exactly say why, but I get the sense that there's sort of this anger towards the very idea that a movie has to have like a huge budget and all these stars and this crew and everything. There was, I believe, a seven person crew on this movie, so very minimalist. And 
it just does everything it needs to do with the acting and with the photography and says we don't need all this money to tell a story there are people everywhere that are going through stuff on a daily basis and this is and and this is you get the sense that this is a movie that was really trying to speak to a lot of experience most specifically as we've sort of alluded to a couple times i get this definite undercurrent of anger again at at at, uh, gender roles which were being rethought a lot at the time in the in the 70s and stuff and obviously you know we've we've come some way but all there's there's still a lot of work to be done but one of the first things that happens is that Wanda gets uh, sort of stiffed by her employer at the textile mill where she's working and and of course divorces her husband and leaves her kids you get the sense that she's just sort of angry at the world for deciding what her life is going to be like. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, And also, even before she goes to the textile mill, there's that one wonderful shot where she just starts walking through the coal fields. um, And it's like a super long uh, zoom Mm -hmm. in. And then it just kind of tracks her as she moves along for like, I'd say probably like at least 90 seconds. Yeah, it's it's uh, one of my shot. favorite shots of the movie. Yeah, and then it's great because later, um, mm-hmm. after they introduce her husband, you see him just driving his truck over that same uh, space that she just walked, and he just does it that quick. But that's a really uh, st- strong and stunning juxtaposition, I think, just to show that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about it that way. Um, you mentioned the sort of the photography of just sort of showing this character on her own. There are a lot of shots like that. There's there's a part in the middle where it's before she meets the the petty criminal, Mr. Dennis is his name, played by Michael Higgins, and where she's sort of just wandering through a mall. And it's so brilliant just the way that Barbara Lone is able to emote in this way. And she's just kind of looking around and the the vibe I get from that is she's kind of looking around bewildered at everyone saying, how am I the only one frustrated by just the frivolousness of, of this life? You know, like I, I, I definitely get the sense that this is a movie that is very much about depression, which uh, I don't know about YouTube, but I experience it from time to time so i definitely was able to hook into that just the way that there are just times when everything seems to be terrible like i mentioned that earlier scene where she goes into the bathroom at the bar and there's not even any hand towels like she can't even catch a break there but what i love is that she's always able to just sort of take it and not even really move on, but just sort of reckon with it. You know what I'm saying? It's it's a movie about just wallowing in the loneliness. Like I, I'm not being very articulate about it, but Will does does that uh, did that come across in any way that this is movie a movie kind of about uh, depression and feeling unsatisfied with life in general? Well, of course, yeah. I mean. Yes, for me, it's like not only about uh, gender norms, but gender expectations. Like you said, like that scene in the mall, like it feels like like not only is like she like looking at this like glass pristine 
like expectation for like what like society expects for her, but it's like in this like literal box as far as like mm-hmm. like what she is like supposed to be like this like perfect housewife or perfect mother or like perfect caregiver of some sort and then like she just obviously like you said like she just doesn't fit into that and she doesn't accept that in society uh as far as like women expectations seem to like see so little of her that she just has no way of like getting out of there and like kind of like feeling like she can find her own identity and her own sense of self and then that sense of like you said like disillusion or disattachment from reality uh is very evocative throughout the film in a way that i think is uh really intriguing and i think uh really well done yeah i think you're absolutely right i hadn't even thought about that the way that the the mall itself is kind of a metaphor and it's not even a long scene it's just sort of this short little sequence where she's kind of wandering around but it's 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 that exact thing you were mentioning how there's sort of just these set number of places she can go things that she can be and I think there's there are a few more things I want to mention, but one of them especially is the uh, the co-star of this movie, which we've only briefly mentioned, which is Mr. Dennis, played by Michael Higgins. Now, Andrew, I want to hear from you first, because this is what I was alluding to earlier, as a matter of fact, with the early criticism uh, or initial criticism, I should say, of Wanda. A lot of people felt that wanda was a victim and was sort of completely helpless and that that was one dimensional when she meets mr dennis and sort of becomes wrapped up into his criminal enterprise now i'm curious andrew what's give me sort of a general reading what what is your view of this character and the relationship that wanda shares with him i think it's a lot more complex than it would initially seem um And I think the reason why a lot of viewers, especially when it first came out, didn't really like um, the way that he's kind of like always the active character and she's just kind of going along um, is just because I don't think a lot of people can really understand um, uh, people who have to deal with abuse and like what keeps them in an abusive relationship um because it's a really tough thing obviously because he's not a good person really uh we see him throughout various points of the film like demean her and like when she goes to buy a dress at one point um with like these nice slacks he like makes her take them off and throws them out the car window um but at the same time you do get the sense that he like her is kind of this uh lonely disillusioned soul who feels like he can't really fit in anywhere or um even get a job or anything like that um so it's definitely like a really complex look at i think codependency um yeah and there's a bunch of her stuff out the window yeah yeah like lipstick too if i remember correctly um but then i think uh kind of a moment that kind of unlocks their relationship is toward the end, um, which Mm. I don't want to get too much into. So we're not spoiling it, but they end up um, basically going to a bank. um, And then Mr. Dennis starts devising this plan of how they can rob it. Um, And they go to the house of the bank manager um, and basically uh, hold him up there um, and make him get in the car with them so that he can take them to the bank and do that. And right before they go off and start to drive to the bank, um, there's this little moment where uh, Wanda 
it looks at Mr. Dennis and he says, like, you did really good. You're something special. And she just, like, smiles. Um, and it's one of the only times in the movie where uh, you can see that she's actually happy. Um, so I think uh, that moment really points to how even though Mr. Dennis is an abusive person and isn't treating her as good as she should be treated, that they do kind of understand each other on a deeper level. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that there is, they do come to this mutual understanding that is really unique. And there's the moment that actually stuck sticks out to me when, when it comes to their relationship is there's a part where they're driving, just going somewhere, I forget where exactly. And Wanda does something just sort of like vaguely annoying and Mr. Dennis is like pulls over and and says, "Okay, get out." And she's like, "No. I don't want to." And it's kind of and the and it's just paced magnificently just the timing of the scene and you can tell that he's just like, "Okay." Like there's kind of this respect that they they develop in that scene. Well, I'm curious what uh if if we haven't said it already, what do you think is what's what's your read on these two characters relationships um i don't know i mean like i said i don't know if i have anything more that hasn't been said already i think andrew said it quite well um but yeah i mean as far as their relationship i mean i am curious though about why critics were so willing to look at it from like a like kind of like two-dimensional point of view i do wonder if it had something to do with like the criticism at the time period being maybe like a pretty primarily male driven industry i don't exactly know if that's true but um, yeah, it's mostly true actually i happen to know that pauline kale was one of the ones who right. criticized it so oh really oh wow oh. Mm-hmm. all right well <laughs> but generally enough. speaking yes i'm just i'm just yeah. saying there are exceptions to the rule but um yeah i mean as far as their relationship itself um yeah i think what makes um barbara is it landon or or Linden? barbara uh, loden 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 sorry uh barbara loden uh so accomplished as an early filmmaker is that she's able to find those complexities and in a way that obviously like these two characters like even from the get-go like the way she develops her own character to be like this like morally kind of hard to read person and like someone who's like you can't really get a full read on it till like pretty well into the film and then like like you said like for me, it wasn't really to the mall scene that I really got to understand her character and really understand like what she was saying through her character. And then likewise, like his character, I was trying to figure out as so I was going along, like where exactly is this guy standing? Like where is like you're saying, like, is he like kind of taking advantage of her? Is he like just kind of using her? Is there like something kind of mutually beneficial here? Is there something a lot darker going on? And then I, I think the way she's able to bring out that complexity and what's otherwise a fairly kind of simple film as far as its approach and execution is uh something i always really admire in a first-time filmmaker yeah i think you're absolutely right i I couldn't have said it better myself um i think we've talked a lot about this movie we're sort of being a little bit more vague about it because it's not as much of a huge classic but i really hope that uh, a lot more people start to check it out as they have in the past year so i'm gonna say uh, let Andrew, let's start with you. Is there a? Is there anything else about the movie specifically that you wanted to mention? And if not, what are sort of your final thoughts on Barbara Loden's Wanda? Yeah, so uh, 
when I was reading about this film, I came across an anecdote that Barbara Loden based this off of a real 1960 uh, newspaper article that she read about a woman who uh, was an accomplice in a bank robbery. And then when she was uh, on trial, um, she got sentenced to 20 years and um, she thanked the judge who sentenced her which is really interesting, but you can definitely see how that inspired her uh, for the film Wanda. Um, mm-hmm. And then I guess for my final thoughts, I would just say that I think earlier you kind of brought up how this uh, film bears some resemblance to Bonnie and Clyde with how she links up with Mr. Dennis and then they kind of do a attempted bank robbery. Um, and uh Personally, for me, Bonnie and Clyde, I've always liked that film, but it's never fully clicked for me. And I never really was able to pinpoint why. But after watching Wanda, I felt like I kind of realized why, um, just because of how Wanda, I feel like, is kind of the same general story, but totally from uh, the female character's point of view and done in like a really uh down-to-earth social realist style um, and approach, which to me is uh, more evocative um, when it comes to exploring the emotion of that situation and that type of relationship. Um, So not to throw any shade at Bonnie and Clyde, but... uh, Don't even think about it, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know you love that movie. Uh, For me, Wanda, though, definitely... it it paints a picture of that kind of movie just in a way that I don't think anyone else really had before then, which is what makes it really significant in my opinion. I think you're absolutely right. No one had done it before. And honestly, no one's ever really done it since, at least not in a way that I've seen. Uh, This is a very, very unique movie and I think we're better off for it. Will, what are your final thoughts and or final points to make about Wanda before we move on? Um, well, I don't want to take up too much space on that, only just because I've seen the film literally just like uh, minutes before we started this recording. So um, obviously you two have sat with it and revisited a lot more than I have. So anything that I'd really say would be far less eloquent and uh, it'd just be more like my immediate reactions. But I think I've pretty much said everything I have to say so far. I mean, obviously, I'm going to have to sit with this film a little bit longer and really think about it and uh, hopefully have as many fond things to say about it as you two have. But um yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I, I definitely am glad for this podcast, this, uh, I guess, spinoff series of Cinemaholics, because I am always <laughs> thankful to watch these movies that I should have watched a long time ago. And uh, I feel like this is a perfect example of a film that uh, is I, it was one I wanted to see a few years ago, and I feel like I should have watched it years ago, but I'm thankful that I finally got a chance to watch it, because I, I think it is really a testament to its uh, timeliness and its persistence. Uh, that it, it continues to resonate well over like half a uh, century uh, yeah. of being a, being a thing. So um, as far as uh, recommendations or films in this vein, the one that kept coming to mind for me was uh, one from a few years ago called American Honey. I don't know if you two have seen it or wow. not. I've been meaning to see that for so long. Yeah, I've seen that one. Uh, also by a um, woman director and a uh, bold introduction for Sasha Lane as a uh, actress. And I felt like 
this movie and that film were very evocative of one another and just kind of capturing that like free flowing feel as far as like a road trip and as far as a woman character kind of coming to terms in a very complex and layered and messy way with her identity and who and her role in society and who she wants to be. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love that movie and um, I, I found it very reminiscent of this film as I was watching it. So if you liked Wanda a lot, I would definitely recommend American Honey as well. Yeah, I second that. Definitely adding that even further up on my watch list. Um, yeah, I think we pretty much said it all. I think Wanda is, it's a movie that is not going to thrill you, I would say. We haven't really mentioned, or, or I guess we have, but this is a very lo-fi movie. Like it's, it is mostly dialogue, mostly improvised dialogue. But it is a movie that I think almost anyone will be able to connect to in some way. And that and Barbara Loden was very deliberate about that. She said, like, this is I I am the one making this movie, but also I feel like this is speaking to something very true about the human experience. And I think she definitely succeeded. And I, you know, granted, this movie is should have been a classic many years ago but it is never too late to discover something great i say and so i think we can close the book on that i think andrew and i will give our uh, recommendations a little bit later in the show we'll sort we'll sort of space them out a little bit in the meantime let's let's do one of the weirdest transitions ever let's go to 1985 let's talk about Another movie where a character sort of roams the countryside in search of some sort of meaning, be it physical or existential. Let's talk about Tim Burton's featured debut, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Warner Brothers is proud to present the story of a guy. Good morning. I'm here. And his bike. James Bond kind of stuff. Together for the first time in their first big movie. I meant to do that. I say we kill it. Yeah! I say we let him go. Now, as I mentioned, this is the first Tim Burton movie. And weirdly enough, it is actually one of the ones I did not see until very recently. I think it was earlier this year, right at the beginning of this whole quarantine lockdown period, actually, when I first watched Pee-wee's Big Adventure. And I can't even remember why. Will, I remember we were having a conversation about this because I also watched uh, Big Top Pee-wee and was really kind of heinously put off by that movie but uh uh the 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 first one is delightful so i'm glad that we got that we're getting a chance to talk about it i want to i want to know you mentioned that it's been many years since you watched this what was that your first introduction many years ago or does the history go back even further than that uh no i mean i i remember sometime i want to say like early middle school i my uncle started showing me clips of uh 
Pee-wee's Playhouse, the show, like on like DVD or something, or maybe it was reruns or something. And that was my introduction to the show. And I mean, obviously there's other shows like it, so it didn't feel like totally like revolutionary as I feel like it probably was for like people growing up throughout like the 80s or in, I, I believe the show was in the early 80s, if I recall correctly. I think so. It's like early, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, but yeah, I mean, just like, I, I don't know. It just, there's always like something about a show where like, it's obviously meant for kids, but it's like also kind of playing for adults and it feels like anything can happen pretty much. Like there's just like a spontaneity to it and a sense of just like, we'll just throw anything at the screen and see what happens. And like, there, but there is like a method to the madness at the same time. Like it doesn't feel like it's just a like free for all. Um, and I knew that that was going to be really hard to capture in a film, but, um, I did, I, I remember liking Pee Wee's big adventure as a kid. I don't think I never quite got the feeling that like some people I talked to, they say Pee Wee's big adventure is their favorite Tim Burton film. And I always mm. found that to be kind of strange. Cause like, even though I do like the film quite a bit, like I don't, I don't typically associate this film with Tim Burton. Like it is a very Tim Burton film to yeah. be clear, but like. Like uh, another film we talked about on the show, like Ed Wood, uh, that's my personal favorite. And then like Edward Scissorhands and like Big Fish, like those films like feel like more true to like, I feel like way traditional Tim Burton film is, or even the first Batman film, um, like that and Beetlejuice, of course, like those, like those are like the movies that come to mind for me. And then like Pee-wee's Pee-wee's film, uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure is a Pee-wee film. And I think it's very good as like a TV adaptation and stuff like that, but I don't see it as like the quintessential tim burton film but i think as far as a debut and like introducing his like very idiosyncratic style in a very palatable and in a very entertaining fashion uh, i think he nailed it with this for sure nice yeah i want to there's something you said about the way that this is kind of meant for adults and kids alike i think it's kind of a secret to unlock in this movie and i want to talk a little bit about that but first i want to hear from andrew mcmahon this was a I, i'm curious i actually don't know is this a an old favorite or are you sort of recently discovering this one like i am uh so yeah i watched this again today and it's technically a rewatch for me although not really because i only saw this one once when i was like 11 or 12 when uh oh, my. my uncle uh who was born in the 80s so he grew up with peewee and he loves this movie um, he showed it to me one night, and really all that I remembered was just the opening scene when he wakes up and <laughs> starts making breakfast. And then, of course, when uh, his neighbor Francis comes and then they start insulting each other by saying, like, uh, <laughs> what does he say? Uh, I know you are, but what am I? Yeah, I know you <laughs> are, what am forth. I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> Times infinity, basically... that's basically all that i remembered about it so watching it again today it was basically like watching it for the first time for me Hmm. that's very interesting you know i'm gonna that actually reminded me of a memory i didn't realize i had which was that i started watching this movie as a kid but i was actually scared by it and i think it was the clown the laughing clown when peewee goes back and the bike is missing okay. i remember <laughs> that really terrifying me for whatever reason so and so i don't think i actually finished it but hmm. so i guess i i'd seen like 20 minutes of this movie as a kid but it wasn't until recently that i actually watched it um, um and yeah i think it is it's just such a such a shameless 
uh, oh, what's what's the what's the phrase I'm looking for? Such a shameless kind of childlike journey through the world. You know what like I'm an, saying? Like, like an adolescent point of view, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think it is sort of it's this movie that is has a really silly sense of humor. If you know anything about Pee Wee, it's probably that, that the silliness and the zaniness, the contraptions, the music, the actual jokes themselves, everything about it is meant to make uh, a kid laugh on the surface. But mm-hmm. also you watch this movie, the situations that Pee Wee finds himself in are actually kind of heavy and serious. Like, uh, you know, there, there's a, there's adultery involved and there's, uh, you know, just just theft and everything. And I actually, I, I forgot to mention earlier that kind of a popular reading of this movie is that it is sort of a farcical send up of the movie Bicycle Thieves, which is fascinating because that's actually my favorite movie of all time. And yeah, so, I mean, that's the um, the main inspiration for Paul Rubens. He, I think he's on record for saying that. I think so, too. Yeah, that that it was sort of a sort of a spin on that. Um, but yeah, it is a child, a man child, I should say in an adult world, but who also isn't naive like a child, you know, just sort of sees things with this youthful gaze, sees the potential for wow everywhere. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's basically if he took the two lead characters in bicycle thieves, the father and the son. And then just meshed them into one person. <laughs> and then like they're just kind of yeah. awkwardly like flip flopping through life. Like that's basically and then they 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 still the plot of Bicycle Thieves is still happening, but it's just they're one person now. And that's what's happening. Yeah. The 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 general premise of Bicycle Thieves. There's not it's not like post war. Well, yeah, Rome, and, I'm, the, and yeah, the bicycle I'm, is the key to success. Right. But. Obviously, for if, if you're going to compare Bicycle Thieves to Pee Wee's Big Adventure, I'm being very, very broad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. There, there's, there are definitely similarities to be seen. So I want to something that I want to ask. Uh, I want to ask Andrew first, and then Will. I'm very curious what because this movie has developed a reputation as being a cult favorite, which it is. And I'm curious in in addition to that lens that I mentioned, where it's sort of. Uh, adolescent mindset looking at the world and just never never getting too hampered by the heaviness of it it's kind of the direct opposite of wanda in some ways even though they uh, have a little bit of a similar structure um what do you think has made this movie maintain like why has it remained in the consciousness so much why is it still such a favorite among many circles. Andrew, what do you think? Ooh, well, uh, that's a big question, but if I had to guess, I'd probably chalk it up to a big part of it is the fact that Tim Burton was directing it and it is his directorial debut. Um, because I, I think as Will said, it's not maybe the most Tim Burton movie out of any of his, but there's yeah, definitely a ton yeah, there's definitely a ton of like personality and like Tim Burton-y trademarks, I would say, that he kind of finds ways to get in there, um, especially when it gets to some of like the little horror-ish like nightmare yes. sequences. <laughs> um, especially oh my gosh. since the large Marge, the claymation, that's terrifying. Yeah, yeah, or when he's uh, dreaming about the dinosaur crushing his bicycle and it's like the stop Ooh. motion. 
Um, but interestingly, I also read that he did, I think, two short um, animated films before this. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, Vincent and Frankenweenie, right? Yeah, the the, the Frankenweenie was live action, the the original one, and right? It was yeah, made into animation recently. But yeah, mm-hmm. it was it was those two shorts that Tim Burton did in the early eighties. Frankenweenie was actually for Disney, but Tim Burton just didn't wasn't really feeling it apparently. And so it was actually Warner Brothers who sort of jumped on the opportunity and said, "Let's give this let's give this filmmaker a, a way to express their vision." And it's a damn good thing they did because uh, we've we've gotten a lot of a lot of great stuff from Tim Burton. To be fair, a lot of bad stuff. He's a very hit and miss director, but I think this is about as good as a debut can get. So, Will, I'm curious, what do you think is is a is the the reason that this film has maintained? If we haven't said it already, well, I mean, you basically alluded to it earlier, which is that I think this film does something that a lot of films have tried, but not a lot of films have able been able to accomplish which is that it captures the like everescent like adolescence of a child without fully overdoing the adult aspects of it. And I think that's what you were alluding to earlier when we were talking about Big Top Pee Wee. Like one of my big issues with that film without getting Ugh. too deep into the specifics is that that movie I think pushes the adult stuff too much. Like there's too much of an ironic like undercurrent to it and there's also like too many things where like they try to like incorporate sex and different things Ugh. and it's just like Pee Wee is not get me started, right. Will. I haven't seen I didn't see the Netflix one yet. I keep meaning to, but I've heard it's fine. That one wasn't bad. Yeah, Did, I heard uh, it's f- yeah. Was it Big uh Pee Wee's Holiday? Is that what it was called? Um I or maybe for- Big Holiday? It's one of the two, yeah. Something like that. I know it's like from what I can see in the trailers, like they're tr- clearly trying to just do Big Wee- Pee Wee's Big Adventure again, throw up like lesser results I from what I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um It's actually a lot less zany. You can tell that there's a little bit more that that well, Pee-wee has sort of grown a little bit yeah. and has achieved a little bit more zen. So yeah. that one I do recommend watching. Big Top Pee-wee is misery. I mm-hmm. I despise that movie. Yeah, I mean by that point Paul Rubens was what like well into his like late fifties or early sixties. So I I can't yeah. imagine it can be that zany at that point uh, for his like health and safety. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean as far as the movie itself, like I think. It is a fairly patchy film. Like, I don't think, like, if you really broke down the plot, it's just a lot of, like, set pieces and then, like, just different characters correlating into, like, a kind of loosely thread, loosely threaded plot, which is fine because it's, like, a, I think the movie understands that, like, Pee Wee as Heart is all about the simplicity. It's just, like, the kind of eccentric absurdities that happen around him and in yeah. his house and just, like, the different people reacting to it make. Pee-wee like that's like I mean his reactions obviously are key to in his performance but like you you can't really like overdo it to the point where it's like if you do too much then like the zaniness gets downplayed and then like what's so crucial to his character gets overlooked and I think this movie really respects that balance I think like the fact that like we said like it isn't like too Tim Burton-y is probably for the best like it makes sense to do this as his debut like if he did this like three or four movies into his career probably would have been too much of his style that yeah. we're familiar with to the point where I, I don't think the balance would have worked out. So like it made sense to have as his debut. Not that they really planned it that way. It just like, you know, just worked out. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I think it just has that that good balance of like Tim Burton style and like Pee Wee's uh, brand, basically. And it's just like they complement each other very well and make a product that's probably ultimately better than it really should be. <laughs> 
It really is, yeah. Because mm-hmm. it, it is definitely this kind of wish fulfillment story, which a lot of times they rub me the wrong way. But there's just this sort of, there's this knowingness to the movie. I don't even know if that's the correct word, but it's just, you, you get the sense that they kind of understand, like, we're not taking this too seriously. We're just sort of telling the story with this character in a, in a unique way. And we hope that you enjoy it. And indeed it is very enjoyable. Um, I want, I want to, Andrew, I'm, I'm actually curious. Uh, I'm not, I don't want to ask for like a specific number or ranking or anything, but where do you think this, like, where do you think this generally ranks among Tim Burton's filmography in your opinion? Like, is it upper tier or middle or what, what do you think? I'd say it's probably like lower upper tier like i don't think it's top i don't think it's quite top shelf tim burton um granted i also haven't seen like a few of his uh most acclaimed ones like ed wood um it's been a long time since i've watched some of his other ones like edward scissorhands and beetlejuice which i need to revisit um (laughs) but for a directorial debut and for this being this kind of absurdist comedy that's a spin-off of a tv show uh i do think he couldn't have done really much of a better job um, with this um, because it it is very much uh, a simple, like uh, I think they said it's like a 90 minute film and a 90 page script. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's always very fast paced uh, and kind of goes from like incident to incident. Um, But I think the way Tim Burton is just really in tune with Pee Wee, the actual character and Paul Rubin, um, Paul Rubin's performance as Pee Wee is really what makes this work so well. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if Burton uh, felt like a sort of kinship with uh, Pee Wee Herman himself, just because of how much of how many of his films are about kind of outcasts or uh, misfits um, who don't really fit in conventionally with the world, but kind of are able to, make something out of it um with other outcasts and misfits i think that's a really important through line throughout his filmography yeah i think you're absolutely right and not only finding kinship with other outcasts but i but discovering that your own cast outedness whatever the adjective is doesn't have to be a bad thing, you know, sort of embracing it and everything. So I really, I really like that a lot. Uh, Will, I'm curious where uh, I, I will, I'll ask you the same question. Do you think this is uh, upper tier Burton or a little bit lower? What do you think? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty much right there with Andrew on this one. Like for me, like top five, Tim Burton are, I mean, Edward and Edward Scissorhand are like the cream of the crop in my view. Like they yep. are two of my the favorite two, films. The two yeah. Ed movies. Those yeah, are the exactly. best. Yeah. I mean, uh, if if Ed's in the title for Tim Burton, you know you're gonna get something good. Um, so yeah. I'm hoping he makes a third one that just like his final film is whatever, like you know, Ed Norton or something. Who knows? It's just like <laughs> Ed a, Norton, uh, <laughs> just a biopic about yeah. Edward Norton or something like that. Yeah, just like some Ed movie. Harris. That, yeah, I'd yeah love Ed Harris. Yeah, that'd be something. Um, <laughs> yeah, those two are like I I don't think that he'll ever top those two films in my films in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. they're just the quintessential Tim Burton movies in my view. Uh, and then, like, rounding up the top five would probably be, like, um, Big Fish, Batman Returns, and Beetlejuice in some order. I don't know exactly what, but, um, yeah, I mean, like, going off of that, like, yeah, I'd say it's somewhere between, like, six, seven, eight. Like, it's right around there. It, I I really do love, like, 
Tim Burton when he's good. Like you said, like I don't love everything he's done, and he obviously has his big misses. But um, yeah, when he, I mean, more often than not, I'd say three out of four times, I tend to like Tim Burton stuff, or at least appreciate what he's doing. Like I, I can like aesthetically value what he's bringing to the film, if, if even if I don't always connect to the story. Um, yeah, but this one, I think it's very clearly his style, and he's bringing a lot to it as a first time director. I just don't think it has that individual stamp as far as like hit enough of his like sentimentality and enough of his like individuality as a filmmaker to the point where it's like that's like a quintessential uh, Tim Burton movie. But it is, I think, a very good Tim Burton movie and obviously a very good debut. Um, and obviously, it's also another film, like you said, about a misunderstood adolescent kid or adolescent man in this case living in the suburbs uh trying to be understood which is like every other tim burton film <laughs> which is fine because yeah. it, it, he has a formula and it works for him i think but um yeah i mean i really enjoy it like i said not not top five but easily pretty high top 10 nice nice i'm i i think uh i think we're all pretty much in agreement and uh, we've said just about everything. So unless anyone had anything else to say about Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I think we can move on to our final film of the evening or perhaps morning or afternoon, whenever you're listening to this, which is a little out of the ordinary. And it is not as much of a huge classic as we usually uh like to highlight on Extra Milestone. But A, I thought it kind of is in keeping with these other two movies. And plus it gives us a chance to talk about the great late Agnes Varda. We are of course talking about the 1985 independent uh, art house drama Vagabond. One thing that makes Vagabond such a rich and complex film is that it's constructed as three movies in one. It's a road movie, tracing the encounters of the homeless Mona Bergeron as she travels through France's Languedoc region. This road movie is structured as a mystery as well. It begins with the discovery of Mona's corpse in a ditch, then follows an investigation into how she ended her life there. At the same time, Vagabond offers us what we can call a network narrative, a cross-section of several characters linked by kinship, love, work, or just accident. The director, Agnès Varda, was ideally placed to merge these possibilities. Arguably, she made the first feature film of the French New Wave, La Pointe Courbe of 1955. This, too, was a fusion of storylines, setting a couple's unraveling romance amid a documentary survey of life in a small fishing village. Throughout her career, Varda has experimented with narrative and film style. Like her friend Alain René, who edited La Pointe Courte, she changed our conception of film form. For many critics, Vagabond's creative, multi-dimensional storytelling has made it a milestone in film history. And uh, it's interesting because Agnes Varda is often considered the kind of part of the trifecta of French New Wave directors, and it is Truffaut, it's Godard, and it's Agnes Varda. And we've talked about on Extra Milestone, not us specifically, but just on the show in general, uh, we've discussed The 400 Blows, which was Truffaut's first movie. We've discussed Breathless, which was Godard's first movie, and... Although Cleo from 5 to 7 was not Agnes Varda's first movie, it's kind of the one that really, that it's kind of her big French New Wave classic. And I thought we could wait until 2022 
to talk about that for the 60 year anniversary. But why not get to highlight uh, uh, another a later film of hers while we can right now? So, Andrew, I'm curious, not just Vagabond specifically, but what is sort of your connection to Agnes Barda? Are you a fan of hers or are you sort of uh, just dipping your toe in the water a little bit? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of dipping my toe into the water with this one. I've only seen one of her other films before, which was actually uh, one of her last films. Um, it's called Faces Places um, from 2017, hmm. which was a documentary she made in collaboration with a uh, photographer artist named J.R. Um, but in that movie... Uh, this is, of course, Agnes Varda being like a 90-year-old woman. Her and this photographer, J.R., go and just kind of travel through the uh, French countryside um, and talk to just ordinary people. Um, I watched that in a contemporary world cinema class in 2017, Ooh. which was a lot Fancy. of fun. Um, and that was actually kind of the first time I heard about Agnes Varda. Um I, for some reason, like in none of my film history classes, was she brought up with like other French New Wave guys like Godard and Truffaut, um, which I'm still kind of uh, bitter about because um, yeah, I think she's weird. every bit as good as both of them. But I think she's better, that, honestly. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I could understand anyone thinking that. Um, for me, uh, she's definitely a super talented person and. Based on these two movies, I'd say that she's definitely um, a very inquisitive filmmaker who's very interested in people. Um, mm. And I naturally kind of gravitate toward filmmakers who have that sort of empathetic uh, lens to their movies. So I definitely got a lot out of Vagabond. Nice. And this is your first time seeing it, correct? Yes. Okay, so I think that actually makes it a first for all three of us. So that's really fascinating. Now, Will, I remember on an episode of Cinemaholics earlier this year, we actually briefly discussed uh, the documentary Varda by Agnes, which came out. I can't remember. Was it late last year or early this year? It was somewhere around there. Uh, I believe uh, film festival wise, it came out last year. And then as far as it's like general, like theatrical rollout, it came out earlier this year. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And I had mentioned that that documentary especially really highlights just how unique and creative of a voice Agnes Varda has. And it shows that she was always striving for something different, for something that hadn't been done before. Um, what Will, I'm curious, I'll, I'll ask the same question. What is your connection to Agnes Varda? Have you seen a lot of her uh, other stuff or is this kind of just getting started? Uh, I'm pretty close to where Andrew is. I saw Faces Places in theaters, um, the one art house theater that, that played it around here. And that was like my more formal introduction to her work. Although I was from film class, like aware of um, Cleo from five to seven. I'd seen several clips from that film, but I said not had a chance to see the whole film. And I still haven't had a chance to see the whole film, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was pretty familiar with her work. Like I knew she was like cinema's grandma, like, at, like, <laughs> like for the last few years, like obviously yeah. like people on film Twitter and like film people, like everyone loves Agnes Varda for re good reason. Obviously like she's one of the greats and if anything, she hasn't fully gotten her due, uh, throughout the years and still, but, um, yeah, this is my first narrative film that I've seen all the way through from her. 
Okay, very interesting. Um, I have actually seen a, a handful of Agnes Varda's movies. I've seen Cleo from Five to Seven several times. I watched her earlier movie, uh, I'm, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but uh, La Pointe Court, I think it's called, um, which I wasn't as taken by, but I'd be curious to rewatch it. And then earlier this year, actually, an, another movie that was eligible for Extra Milestone is called Le Bonheur, uh, hope I'm pronouncing that right, which translates to happiness. And that movie was kind of blew me away, really. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen. It's I'm not going to spend too long on it, but it's a story about a couple and adultery is involved, but there's no dramatic weight to it whatsoever. It's really strange the way that the entire thing is injected with levity and bright colors when right in the center of it, there's kind of this you know, horrific story going on. And so that was really unique. And I would, I can't wait to rewatch that movie and getting to watch Vagabond for the first time. It was, it's funny because, but just kind of by sheer coincidence, I had heard of this movie from several different places within a really short span of time. It was of course brought up several times in the documentary Varda by Agnes. And also I just, I, was reading a couple of interviews with different filmmakers just for the hell of it. And a, more than one of them mentioned this movie specifically as being an inspiration for them. And so I thought, okay, I've got to check it out. And I finally got to for extra milestone. And I'm glad I did because this is, this is a really striking movie and it's really fascinating. It is just to give a quick synopsis of the plot. The movie starts with a couple of uh, farmers in sort of this rural area. They're just, they wake up one morning and they look and they see in a ditch is a woman's dead body lying there. And then the movie flashes back and we just see the weak leading up to her death. And we find out that uh, she's, uh, her name is Mona and, she just doesn't really have a home. It's sort of a wanderer, a vagrant, if you will, and just sort of goes around trying to find a place where she belongs. And some locales take to her more than others. And it is just kind of, kind of this, uh, kind of this story of trying to find your place in the world when maybe there isn't one at all. And it's really effective. Andrew, I'm curious. What was give us sort of like a general reaction? What did you think about Vagabond? Did you like it? Love it? Whatever. What What was uh, What was your thoughts? I really liked this one. Um, like you alluded to, how it opens with her just lying dead in the ditch. I thought that was a really bold choice for um, how to open the film. And uh, from there, I thought it was interesting how um, you kind of get a little bit of voiceover narration um, from like an unseen interviewer who's kind of saying that she's going to go talk to the last people who apparently saw this woman and interacted with her before she died. Um, and then we kind of go into flashback from there, but the structure of it I think is really unique because you'll see the scenes play out and then uh, there's really no like particular uh, set way she does it but after like a scene or something she might have like one of the other characters that um, the main girl whose name is Mona uh, yep. they'll have like one of those uh, people that she just interacted with like uh, 
break the fourth wall in kind of like a documentary fashion and just talk about their feelings about her. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting uh, formal choice and structural choice that uh, Agnes Varda made for the movie. Um, and I think also that uh, this movie in some ways is very similar to Wanda, um, but because of the unique way that it's structured, um, I would say it's also kind of different because whereas Wanda, I think, is trying more to put you into the like subjective experience of that character this one i felt like was a little bit more observationalist um mm -hmm. and i think it's as much about um how the people around mona are viewing her as it is about mona herself which i just thought was a really interesting way to do it yeah i think you're absolutely right i think the key to the difference with wanda which of course was th it's its own movie, but just in the per for the purposes of this podcast episode, um, I think Wanda is coming from a very empathetic place, whereas I feel like Vagabond is coming from a very sympathetic place. Where Agnes Varda, you can tell, feels for this character, who, as I mentioned several times, just is kind of drifting through the world and never settles in one particular uh, particular place, and. Part of the reason for that is is that it may not be by choice 100% of the time, but that a lot of the people she comes across just sort of disregard her, you know, where like they sort of take one look at her and decide, uh, we're not going to associate with this person. It's sort of, it's sort of this, um, what's uh, this, uh, oh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Sort of this anger at the superficial nature of humanity how a lot of times we'll disregard something just because we don't like the way it looks or the way it feels initially and what we don't know is that really there's a lot of complexity to it and i think that's uh, i think that's a really unique approach to take from a movie and one thing that agnes Varda does kind of intermittently throughout the movie is sort of in almost this abstract way We'll just sort of cut to things that that have nothing to do with the scene we're watching. Very specifically, I'm thinking of the scene early on where they find Mona's corpse laying in that ditch. And a couple of times it cuts to what I initially thought was paint being hosed off of a wall. And we later find out that it's actually that that actually comes into play. Um but you get the sense that it's sort of the juxtaposition of this corpse being found with someone just kind of cleaning up a mess. Like there's not it, it's almost as if the movie is saying that they're not giving thought to the fact that this was a person, but that it's just a thing that needs to be deal, uh, to be dealt with. It's sort of this this thing that we want to get rid of. And it's very sympathetic and I think it's very effective. And yeah, Will, I have we haven't heard a lot from you about uh, about Vagabond specifically. So you watched this movie for the first time. What was what was kind of your general reaction to it? Yeah, I mean, like you said before, I saw um, Fury by Agnes only a few months before, so I I was aware of some of the key scenes beforehand. Like I, when as soon as I started watching the movie and I saw, like you said, the opening where we see our main character is literally dead in the ditch. I was like, oh yeah, wait, I remember 
which movie we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think as you two mentioned, it, it's it's a very bold choice for a film, obviously, to like start with the character we're going to meet, get to know is like, hey, heads up. She literally dies <laughs> in a ditch. Uh, yeah. So don't get your hopes up. But I think there is something to that where like, like, as we were saying before, I feel like even though this movie is maybe a little bit darker than your average Agnes Varda film, like um, Agnes Varda film. Um, I do think, I don't think her intent here is to be bleak or to be like nihilistic in any particular sense. Hmm. I think the fact that she dies and we we know that at the beginning is like almost like a weird sense of like comforting the audience of being like, like, Hey, like we're just going to rip this bandaid off real quick. Like, so this character dies. Like if, if, if the movie had ended that way and we didn't get any lead up, I feel like that would have been almost like a colder way to tell the story. Yeah. Like, we got to know yeah. her and, like, really, like, understood her as, like, a person and just, like, oh, yeah, and she died in a ditch. <laughs> it's like, anyway, that's, that's bye. And if that, that would have felt, like, way meaner, and I just don't see that from Agnes. So I feel like the, the way the movie approaches the material is kind of just, like, look like there's a very sad end to the story. Like, don't really get your hopes up. But, like, in doing so, like, through, like, that um, unseen narrator character, that kind of, like, almost documentarian character I don't, i'm not quite sure if they're like making a movie or if they were just talking to the people directly because like each one of those segments has kind of like a like um i don't know what like the box frame kind of style where it's like yeah almost like they're on camera the, uh, the like, sense i got was that it was sort of meant to be like the kind of the investigation into right. the actual murder so maybe yeah. they were filming it for whatever reason because there's like also the one character who like just breaks the fourth wall almost randomly at, at times to, to mm-hmm. do similar things so I, I, I kind of got the vibe that she was, like, meant to be the investigator, but I don't think that was the case. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I think I think it is a testament to Agnes Varda and her approach to this material and that, like, as we said, like, she is such an empathetic and sympathetic filmmaker that I think even at her, like, darkest, which is probably this film, or at least one of her darkest, um, there is some, like, celebration of life or acknowledgement of, like, recognizing the, like, kind of beauty that was found in her very short and, like misunderstood life and just like kind of trying to understand this misunderstood character like even a person that our lead character doesn't fully understand her is like trying to figure out who she is Hmm. there is like a recognition of like how she impacted these people like the good she did throughout her life even if she was a fairly kind of sporadic and like not altogether good person but she did things that were beneficial for other people even in a somewhat maybe indirect fashion and uh i think it's very uh, intriguing way to go about this type of story. Uh, fun fact about this uh, unseen narrator: that's actually Agnes Barda. That's her voice. And yeah, I, I read that. I, yeah, I, I, hadn't I figured as that much, until yeah. I hadn't considered this until right this moment, actually. But I'm al- I'm almost wondering if the very fact that it is her voice, that it is a filmmaker's voice, I'm wondering if maybe it's trying to make a point that artists be it filmmakers or otherwise can understand people like this in a way that, you know, regular, uh, I shouldn't say regular people, but you know, just, just ones who are not making art on a consistent basis that they might not. And we should mention that, uh, the lead character Mona is played by, uh, Sandrine Bonaire, who does, uh, gives a really kind of fantastic performance in this movie and really communicates that, loneliness that sense of not belonging i think part of the part of that is due to the costume design as well um i don't know if either of you noticed this but it almost seems like her costumes are designed 
to stick out in whatever locale she happens to be in at the time. And I think it's uh, it, it's really effective. So I'm curious. I want to ask, uh, or actually first, I should address um, what Will said about how this is uh, among the darker Agnes Varda movies. Actually, not as much as you might think. A lot uh, Agnes Varda dealt with really heavy stuff a lot of the time. Hell, Cleo from five to seven is about a woman waiting for uh, waiting to find out if she has cancer or not, and it's a really heavy thing. But but yeah, this is movie really directly dealing with death within right. seconds, and it lends this kind of finality to the whole thing. You know? Yeah, and that's what I was trying to get at. Is that like it's just more directly dark? Like you were saying, like like I feel like our other movies like kind of like they they have a like um like a lightness or like a like kind of like uh empathetic look at these very dark things in a way that um kind of over like you said like literally happiness like has that to like the, maybe the fullest extent of all of her films and like mm-hmm. this one it just feels like there are moments where it just very directly just says like very you know it it, it makes its points very bluntly at times for ineffective ways like not not to be like shocking or like crude or anything but yeah, in a way. So that's what I was trying to say before is as far as it being one of her darker films. Fair enough. Um, Andrew, I'm curious, after seeing Vagabond, are you curious to seek out more of Agnes Varda's work? Do you think this would be a good introduction, having not seen a lot of the others? Um, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to watching a lot more of her stuff. I already was looking forward to that even before I watched this, just because of how much I loved Faces Places. Um, yeah, it'd be hard for me to really say, uh, gauge how well of an introduction this would be, just because I've only seen those two of hers. Um, mm. But I do think it could serve as an introduction, just because uh, this very much is like what I would call a auteur uh driven movie um where you really get agnes varda's uh point of view on like humanity and the world just kind of through how she approaches filming uh mona and through how she decides to structure and edit this entire thing um so i think it would be I, I really don't think there would be a bad place to start with Agnes Varda, uh, just because she doesn't seem like the type of filmmaker who would ever make something that's like deliberately uh, controversial or trying to like get her eyes out of you. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think if I were to recommend an introduction, uh, it's kind of impossible to go wrong with Cleo from five to seven. So definitely uh, do not miss that one. Um, I think, uh, uh, Will, I was curious, did you have any final thoughts that you wanted to give on Vagabond before we close out our show? Um, well, I mean, I don't know if we're still doing recommendations or not, but um, the movie that definitely I found this to be fairly reminiscent of is Into the Wild, the Sean Penn film. Mm. Ooh, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Good pick. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's from the male perspective on this, so... Uh, it, 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 I don't think it has maybe as uh, acute a perspective or like, it, I don't think it says maybe as much as, uh, this film does, but, um, I, I think that film similarly deals with like a character who comes from a like, uh, perspective that's maybe not privileged, but like, like it's clear that they like, kind of like walked into this life in some respect. And there are different points in that film where our lead character like has avenues through which they could, you know settle down and like not have to like live this somewhat tortured existence but there is like a sense of like 
they feel compelled to do so anyway. And um, that kind of like taking the call of nature essentially. And, and I think both films are very sad, but also very like full of life and a kind of barely sweet in their optimism, I feel like. And um, I would definitely say, you know, if you, if you like that film, if, if you like this film a lot, then check out that one and vice versa. Nice. Yeah. That, that would make a brilliant, brilliant double feature. I'd just be, it would be so hard to decide what to watch first. Um, Andrew, we have not, neither of us have given any recommendations. So now is the time. Did you have uh, a movie or maybe two that sort of came to mind when rewatching one or perhaps all three of these movies that you'd like to recommend? Uh, yeah, I do have one. And I'll just say up front that this movie isn't really similar in any way to uh, Vagabond, Wanda, or Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I was just kind of going off the fact that all three of them are road movies. Um, okay. So I just wanted to recommend a road movie that I like a lot that I don't think a lot of people know of, which is a 1981 Australian film called Road Games. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah, what makes this movie interesting is that it really is kind of a genre film, uh, which road movies typically, uh, you'll either kind of have like a buddy kind of like uh, a movie like uh, Bonnie and Clyde or like uh, um, Thelma and Louise. It's kind of like a comedy uh, as they go from one place to the other, or it'll kind of be more like in the vein of Vagabond and Wanda, where it's more character based and uh, it's just kind of drifting along without really a concrete plot. Road Games involves uh, this really interesting situation that's basically like a Hitchcockian riff on Rear Window, I would say, um, where oh, it follows which this is already us- Hitchcock, interestingly. Yeah, yeah, and it follows this um, Australian trucker guy who's played by Stacy Keach. And, oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, he pulls into this motel one night before he has to pick up um, a new uh, load. And while he's there, there's this other guy who gets out of a green van and checks into the hotel before he can And it turns out that uh, this guy, this mysterious person, you never really see his face, has like this female hitchhiker with him that Stacey Keach's character had already passed on the road prior to that. And he wanted to pick her up, but he couldn't because the company's policy that he trucks for forbids that. Um, So this other guy in the green van ends up taking the last uh, room at the motel so then Stacy Keach has to sleep out in his truck. Um, and then the next day when he wakes up, um, his dog, which he has just like a dingo, uh, who he drives around with him when he's going across country on these truck jobs, um, starts sniffing around the garbage that's right outside the motel and like just underneath the guy's room. Um, And he also notices that the van driver is like watching him uh, from his Hmm. motel room, which instantly kind of makes him think like, what was up with that? Um, And then, but he kind of just goes back to his business. Uh, Along the way, he does pick up a different hitchhiker who he's seen a couple times before, uh, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, And once he picks her up, it kind of becomes this actual uh, like kind of hangout buddy movie, uh, huh. even while it's still this suspenseful Hitchcockian thing. 
Um, so it's kind of like a bunch of different things with how it's like a hangout road movie coupled with like a thriller, like cat and mouse thing. Um, since like the guy in the other car starts getting on to the fact that he's kind of following him now. Um, so it's just a really interesting uh, road movie that I think is definitely not one that's on a lot of people's radar unless you're an aficionado of obscure genre films or Australian films. But hmm. it's definitely one I would recommend to anybody who likes road movies or who likes um, that kind of Hitchcockian s- suspense movies um, with like some guy who gets in over his head and has to deal with it. Nice. That sounds like that sounds really fascinating. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure to add that one to my list as well. Oh, my list is grown so much bigger over the course of this episode um i have one recommendation to give when i was re-watching wanda early this morning i was reminded so starkly of this movie that is another one that not a lot of people have heard of it is a movie from 1986 i want to believe so there's a possibility that it'll come up next year on extra milestone it is betty blue i don't know if you if either of you have ever heard of this movie but it I've is heard of it. It's it's really really unique and imagine it 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 reminded me or Wanda reminded me of it specifically because of sort of the visual aesthetic but also the relationship of the two main characters. It's sort of Wanda except without the existential depression and it's how these two characters these sort of sort of these two outcasts really find each other and just synchronize with each other so strongly in a way that makes almost no sense to anyone else but to them they're the greatest thing that's ever happened to each other and it's really sweet it's really weird that's the thing i love the most about this is just how unusual it is compared to other similar movies and just other movies in general and i believe that one's on the criterion channel i'm not actually sure if it's available elsewhere but definitely check out betty blue if you can and watch the director's cut it's a bit of a long one but i think i think you'll be thankful that you watch it just because of how unique it is and i think with that we're that i think that's our show uh will thank you for coming back on extra milestone and for for planting the seed that was to blossom and become this trifecta of very mm, unique movies yeah of course i always enjoy talking movies with you sam nolan so this is always a pleasure very nice and thank you again andrew for joining the show i imagine this will not be the last time and i hope that i hope that you enjoyed it as much as i did Oh, yeah, I had a great time, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. And, Will, it was a pleasure being in your company as well, sir. <laughs> oh, wow, likewise. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, I, I think uh, our all our social media will be in the description of this episode. So go check us all out. We're all around the Internet in various places and stuff. And I think we will sign off from the Internet Colorado. I'm Sam Noland. From the internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Lashin. From the basement of the Alamo, I'm Andrew. Ooh. <laughs> and we'll see you next time.